0: Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 121 The Great Work of Western Magic. In this episode, we speak with Alan Chapman, co founder of OpenEnlightenment.org, about the great work of Western magic, which is none other than enlightenment itself. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks listeners. This is Ryan Olke. We have a guest in the studio today, which is awesome. And I already like him because he has a book with a
1: grenade on the front of it. Not only that, but he also (laughs) has... A psychedelic Buddha shirt on where there's a Buddha head in the middle and then circling it in layers of concentric Buddha heads is like the psychedelic Buddha head explosion. I love it. And uh, explosion relates to grenade, which relates to our guest's book. And we've got in the studio today, Alan Chapman. He's the author of the recently published Advanced Magic for Beginners. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah,
0: thanks Dude, for listen, being here, man. Hey, listen to that accent. I mean, we're trying to only actually have guests on that are from like the UK
1: or Croatia, preferably. Yeah, I mean, last week we had Susan Blackmore on, and we're we're keeping keeping it real with the UK. Alan's on a six month trip around the world, or your eight, eight months, eight months, eight months, eight month honeymoon with your recent my, yeah, my the, new wife, yeah. new bride, yeah, Ruth, lovely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you guys are traveling through the states and uh, decided to drop in Boulder and talk to the big geeks. That's correct, yes.
2: <laughs> it's, the only reason,
1: it's the only reason I've come traveling is to, 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 get, get, to get on this
0: show. Yes. You, you went to India, everywhere else. It's just like, eventually, it's going to lead to Boulder. To
1: something good. Right yeah. now,
0: yeah, this moment.
1: I love it. Cool. Well, it's great to have you here, man. And we've been wanting to talk to you for a while. As soon as I saw this book, I realized we need to talk to you. And As soon as I heard about what you're doing in the, what, I guess we could call it the Western occult tradition. Yeah, that's good. Um, and we'll get into that. Actually, let's let's go ahead and jump into that now, okay? Because I think we've never really talked on Buddhist Geeks about specifically another tradition. So we're we're branching out in this episode, but we're going to tie it back into the Buddhist tradition because you also have practice experience and and definite interest in the Buddhist tradition. And actually, I guess we're kind of Dharma brothers in a way, since we both have a similar teacher we've found very influential.
2: Yes, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, I'd just like to say thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to introduce my tradition to some of your listeners. Because I think they might find some of the elements uh, within that tradition helpful. I know I've certainly find, found elements in uh, the Buddhist, various Buddhist traditions helpful with with my own progress within my tradition. And I think that might be uh,
1: true both ways. Cool. Well, let's jump in. I'll be honest with you, Alan. Please, Vince. <laughs> okay, please. <do. laughs> when I first heard of the magic tradition, yeah, I couldn't help but think of myself really... As a younger, geekier person playing Dungeons and Dragons. Geekier? yeah. Impossible? (laughs) Right. True. I was wondering the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, in any case, I had the thought of somebody in robes that's older, geeky, and playing Dungeons and Dragons. This is kind of the image that comes to mind. And I, I think I'm not completely alone in that perception. And I know that's a misperception. So let's talk about what magic really is. And also, where does it come from? Okay. I don't think
2: it's. It'd be fair to say it's a misperception because actually I think a lot of people get involved in magic just just because of the uh, you know the, the the surface culture features of it, where you, you know you dress up in robes and wave wands and, and that kind of thing. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing uh, if it gets people actually studying the tradition in depth in some way. But the tradition itself actually started. Um, I mean, there are some people might say it started in ancient Egypt, and certainly the Greeks believe that. But it, it definitely has its roots about 3,000 years ago in Hellenistic Greece, where it started really with one man, which was Pythagoras. You might know him as the mathematical genius, but he was also the inventor of the pentagram, if you can invent such a thing. And that, that of course, is a big a big cultural feature of the magical tradition, the pentagram. And he uh, also invented... Uh, he's the first, first known person to use monasticism, like his followers were encouraged to live with him and apparently they, they didn't, eating beans was forbidden. I don't, I don't know if that's true. I've heard that, yeah. But yeah, the monks, the, the, the Pythagorean monks weren't allowed to eat beans. He also uh, invented ipsosophy, which, was, which is a method of divination by ascribing certain words, uh, numerical values, and working out the, the different meanings of words based on those numerical values, if that makes sense. Um, and that's uh, a big part of Kabbalah today and that fed into Jewish mysticism he was also the very first person to describe himself as a philosopher or a lover of wisdom. Um, and now, now philosophy is really where it, it kicks off, where it, um, enlightenment really does come to the fore, and um, the work of Plato and the Platonists, and later on Plotinus and Proclus, they offered an intellectual means of uh, not only understanding the world, but enlightenment itself, and that that understanding and going through a certain process, which Plato described as... Um, he said it was akin to going through um, a birth, and he described it as philosophical midwifery. That was his job, to help people understand the problems that the, the problems they have with the world, what they don't understand. By going through it, leading them through a process, they can disabuse themselves of certain false beliefs about themselves and reality that they've inherited, yes. usually from the culture. And that would eventually lead to them looking at reality as it is. Something very similar to Vipassana, except it's not a discrete practice where you should sit down for say an hour and just look at reality it was more of a um by thinking about reality and understanding it the mind would naturally incline the philosopher to consider reality as it is and that would eventually lead to direct personal experiences of what we we would call today enlightenment and it's interesting to consider that the platonic forms the greek word for form is actually means to behold or to experience so when you think about Platonic forms, um, such as the good itself, or uh, beauty itself, or justice, it's actually talking about an experience of those things. So the at the moment in the West, when we think of Platonism or philosophy, it's usually as some kind of dead-end uh, intellectual argument for seeing the world in some way. So that's really where the Enlightenment tradition began for the West. And it's, philosophy isn't regarded that way now in the West, and it was... I think it was in the sixth century, the Christian Emperor Justinian came along and closed Plato's um, Academy, which had been around for a thousand years. No doubt churning out enlightened people, I'm sure of it. (laughs) And that's when the Western tradition really went underground in the West. And we see a lot of the Greek metaphysics and philosophy uh, being imported into Christian mysticism, thanks to the Greek theologian Pseudo Dionysius, Mm. who was a massive influence in Christian mysticism. Um, In fact, he's probably responsible for most of it. His work also fed into alchemy, in the middle ages mm. and now this is where we get to the part where y- you might start thinking of robes and wands and <laughs> dungeons and dragons <laughs> dungeons and dragons, that kind of thing and that's mostly because because it was underground whenever it did surface the teachings were always hidden they were always you know there's uh, a big use of metaphor especially with alchemy which was they talked about transforming base metals into gold and the base metal was basically the self and the gold was the realized person then after alchemy, you have Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry, and then you have the occult revival of the 20th century, and then we arrive at Alistair Crowley, who was really the first uh, first saint, if you like, of the Western tradition that was open and honest about it. He didn't really go about it the best way. Um, he was quite egotistical, and, and that, that didn't really help in terms of understanding the tradition. He, was, he very much played on the uh, satanic <laughs> aspect of magic because he, he liked to... Shock and disgust, Christians, especially the bigoted kind of Christian, and so that's that's really where I sort of come in in the tradition. This so so this tradition is really it's 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 three thousand years old as far as I can work out. But after Crawley's death, his work was mostly misunderstood. the The pupils he left behind weren't of a, they didn't really have any practical experience. They weren't very good. And in the seventies, a man called Peter Carroll came along. And he decided to get rid of all, all of the nonsense that had accrued around magic. I mean, especially to do with the whole Dungeons and Dragons aspect of it. He decided to get rid of all that and just uh, work out what the actual what actual techniques worked in terms of gaining a magical result. And um, that was the birth of chaos magic. Now, chaos magic took on board a lot of postmodern ideas, and the aim of it, the aim of the, the chaos magic current, if you like, um, was to use belief as a tool to cause magical effects. But as soon as that happened, the 3000 year old aim of the tradition, which was enlightenment, went out of the window. And it just became an, a one more belief that you could um, play around with to gain magical effects. There was no absolute truth. There was, there was no intrinsic validity in any worldview beyond providing personal satisfaction for the postmodern magician. And that's where the tradition really reached a dead end. Came quite, it's, it's become quite nihilistic. How I got into magic was basically I found out <laughs> I was interested in Dungeons and Dragons as a child and I came across a a book of ghost stories and in there was a, a part about Alistair Crowley and I found it very surprising that there was a a man that at least the authors of the book believed to be a genuine magician, that you know, that magic actually existed. And then when I was fifteen I rather embarrassingly bought a copy of his book, Magic Ethereum Practice, and and that's when I realised that there was some truth to it. And that's when I first realized, well, what the aim was. So I eventually got into chaos magic. It was, it was much, much easier than trying to follow Crowley's instructions. But I came to the point where I was, I was more or less concerned with developing what you'd call in Buddhism, I suppose, the, the city's other psychic powers. Right. And it, for me, magic was all about power. It was about imposing my will on the world, causing things to, to occur. And someone suggested to me that maybe I should try this old practice um, which Crowley was, it was the mainstay of of his uh, magical organisation known as the AA. And that was working with the what's called the Holy Guardian Angel. And now this practice goes back at least to the 15th century. There's a book called The Sacred Magic of Abramel and the Mage, where he worked with the Holy Guardian Angel. But we also know that in ancient Greece, there was what they called the daemon, or the genius, or the Algoides, which is more or less the same same entity for all intents and purposes but I, mean, I can't really speculate whether they, whether they work with it in the same way. Yeah, so someone suggested that I, that I work with the Holy Guardian Angel, and I, I, I started doing that work, and before long I started getting results that I wasn't expecting, and I suddenly realized that my ego wasn't the be-all and end-all of the universe, that there was... <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Hold on. Yeah, shattering, shattering, shattering realization. Yeah, and I started going through a process that Crowley predicted that you'd go through these recognizable stages... And I eventually came across Daniel Ingram's work, where he outlines a very clear four-path Theravada model, which I'm sure your listeners are, are, are aware of. And that, to me, was a great help in terms of working out where I was at in my own tradition. And as I progressed through the various different stages, the the parallels were apparent. And my tradition seemed to be describing exactly the same
1: thing what the Theravada tradition describes. Nice. And that process... Which we call the process of enlightenment or illumination mm-hmm. is in your book. You you talk about that that being the great work of magic. Yeah, the, the
2: the term the great work comes from really comes from alchemy, where they called it the great work. It was it was what they were aiming towards, and it seemed to take a long time to do it. I mean, most people thought that the alchemists were failures and that they never did produce gold from lead. But that was if you took them in a literal sense. In a literal sense, which, yeah, which is. Um, uh, I don't know where someone would get that idea from. If you ever read an an alchemical text, they are highly metaphorical, uh, almost indecipherable. But the term the great work has has carried on through the tradition. I mean, up to this point, we've got elements of, um, and I certainly work with different elements from, not only from philosophy, but from alchemy and Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry, especially Crowley stuff, and the the, um, wonderful contributions of postmodernism and chaos magic, which were important for the tradition, in terms of understanding that there isn't just one way, there isn't just one route to the great work, there isn't just one way of causing magical effects. But we're now at a point where the the misunderstanding of postmodernism, um, which I call extreme postmodernism, is uh, it needed. It needed, needs to be addressed. It needs to be, the, the aim of our tradition needs to be reinstated. And I think it needs to be presented in a more appropriate means for the West. Because I think m- most people aren't even aware that there is a tradition of enlightenment peculiar to the West that has various different features or practices or techniques that you don't find anywhere else. And I think they're a value. And I think that's, that's something that needs to be uh,
1: addressed. And that really is part of what you write about in advanced magic for beginners. Yeah,
2: Well, I'm I'm hoping that the book is a, I want it to be a bridge from chaos magic to the more serious side of, of enlightenment. Uh, and in the book, I don't really talk so much about maps and models. Right. There's a, there's a basic one in there. Um, I mean, that stuff's going to follow. I think we'll talk about it later on with open enlightenment. But really, I hope it's, I, I wanted to write a very short, hopefully funny, introduction to magic um, so that people can just immediately get to grips with it and start doing some of the exercises and experiencing magical results and, you know, really getting to grips with what it means to be a magician beyond the Dungeons and Dragons cheesy cliched image.
0: So, yeah, I really appreciate this, like, background because I think you're right. There's so much confusion in the West around magicism and people do think, like, yeah. Harry Potter... You know, and stuff like that, and not thinking it's a legitimate path to realization. So, what I'd like to hear is like, give me something really tangible. Like, what does it feel like? You know what I mean? So, I'm going to open your book and pull one of the practices out. Mm. What's that tangibly look like in terms of a practice?
2: Well, I mean, the core practice of magic is working with the Holy Guardian Angel, uh-huh. and that's that's essentially. I mean, before I started practicing it, the, the only material they had available was it was it was basically a case of performing a ritual where you would command the angel to okay. appear and you would do this over and over and over until it did appear. And then that was really the end of the work and you'd, you know, you'd succeeded. But through my own experience and, th- and seeing the experience of others that have performed the same practice, mm-hmm. it's, it's really a practice of surrender. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the first thing you realize when you make a breakthrough with the holy guardian angel and you begin to experience what's called the the knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel, mm-hmm. which I'll, I'll describe in more practical terms in a moment. Sure you come to realize that there's something much bigger than you and you are now taking part in a process that is essentially, I mean, you might not even like being taken in that direction. And we, in our tradition, we do have uh, a term for magicians that don't want to give up their ego, that don't want to acknowledge the fact that their ego isn't the be all and end all of the universe. We call them black brothers. They're not actually black people. (laughs) Uh, but it's, I was it's confused a, for a minute. Yeah, it's a bit of a Victorian it's a bit of a Victorian term. It's a distinction between white brothers and black brothers like uh, good and evil kind of Yeah, well this is where you get to the, this see this is a bit cheesy. This is where we get to like the, the white magic and the black magic. Let's get to it. Cheesy buddy. Whoa. Put we're that cheese that down. <laughs> Generally when people think about white magic and black magic, it's people performing magic or spells, if you like, for uh, some kind of end that you can either de- either describe as evil or good. Like, if you do a blessing for someone, that's white magic, and if you do a curse, that's black magic. But really, the distinction means, if you're doing anything other than getting enlightened, if you're doing anything other than attempting to transcend what you're already experiencing, if you're not trying to get out the truth, or to experience God, or working with the Holy Guardian Angel, then you've strayed off the path. Then you're indulging something that is uh, essentially just a distraction from what you should be doing. And I think that's very similar to the uh, Buddhist conception of working with the psychic powers. Like You can get lost, also with concentration states, you can get lost in all kinds of genres and become a genre junkie mm-hmm. or start messing around with psychic powers. And that's just, it's really a distraction from what you should really be doing with your practice. So the knowledge of conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel, that's really when you begin to experience synchronicities, which is when events occur that have a similar meaning. Say you do a ritual to make some money. You will then have an experience outside of the ritual space where you will obtain some money, and it's basically that they have the same meaning. If you do magic, you will not experience, like a genie won't pop up with a bag of cash and give it to you. It's ne- it's never outside of the realms of what you might call the objective world. It doesn't break the the laws of reality or anything like that. It's basically about... The meaning of an experience and you can create experiences that have a particular meaning that you that you desire so you, it is possible to get rich using magic it's not a cop out to say that you know you don't get genies that pop up with, with bags of cash is that um, how you're on your eight
0: month trip shh
1: <laughs> I was gonna ask Secrets I was gonna wait out. till this show and find <laughs> out what your secret was
0: <laughs> I, I think we're in the show right now because get some genies going <laughs>
2: Sorry, so what I was saying about the knowledge of conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel, that's when you begin to experience synchronicities where it's a direct communication from your angel. Yeah. And what you, what you discover is, is that the uh, teachings or specific techniques or certain experiences they need to go through will occur just at exactly the right time when you need them to occur. It's almost like the Holy Guardian Angel is a guru. And you never have to, it's never really a case of having to sit down and try and work out what you should do next. You actually have something that's bigger than yourself it's, it's almost like an attractor that's in the future. It's a, uh, it's almost like an accelerated process of of becoming enlightened. At least that's the way it's, it seemed to me and to a friend of mine, Duncan Barford. We've got a website together called The Baptist Head. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a very different process from just doing straight up meditation in that you have, it's a process of surrender, but it's also a process of being guided towards the great work. And in the book, I talk about various different techniques like uh, composing rituals, doing divination, um, that kind of thing. And they're all useful. I mean, it's useful to to practice those techniques and get a result in themselves, like, say, obtaining some money, only in the sense that you then understand ritually that you can use it for the purpose that it needs to be used for. You see what I mean? The great work. Yeah, working with the Holy Guardian Angel, yeah. And then in my own experience, I had a dream where my Holy Guardian Angel was in there and he, he told me to use a tarot deck as a method of communication. And then, that, then I obtained one and learned the tarot Uh, If I have questions, I can then communicate with my angel through the tarot. And i found that to be of great use. It's also worth bearing in mind that I I know I'm coming from a different, a bit bit of a left field, a different direction from what most listeners, you know, know, most listeners will will probably just do meditative practice and then work out where they're going with the maps and models and stuff. But even if you do like the most driest meditation technique, you will come across very strange phenomenon whether it's entities popping up, whether it's uh, visions, dreams. I mean, I've never had a single bona fide spiritual experience that didn't also bring other stuff with it. Those kind of things, I don't think they're exclusive to to the magical tradition. I think they happen all the time to everyone. And they're things that aren't really dealt with. And I think just ignoring them isn't the most helpful way of of dealing with those things.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you say that, I just think of the vast Buddhist cosmology and all the worlds and beings and especially in the tibetan tradition yeah 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 to the nth nth degree yeah Mm -hmm. um so i mean what you're saying absolutely makes sense yeah that those are a real dimension a real aspect of spiritual experience yeah certainly definitely yeah cool well switching gears a little bit and talking Mm -hmm. about where you're bringing all of this in your personal life yeah you were telling me earlier about this newly launched site, openenlightenment.org. And I want (laughs) to ask you, what is open enlightenment and why is it important? I think there are a lot of problems
2: with enlightenment per se, how we understand enlightenment. I mean, we're at a point in history now where we are privileged to be able to have access to various different traditions that deal with enlightenment in very different ways. And I think it's time that we... We reviewed all of that material and come up with the more and, and attempts to at least understand enlightenment in the most useful and accessible fashion. The truth is, the enlightenment, as far as I'm concerned, is the root of all spirituality. It's the root of all the major traditions around the world Lao Tzu, Moses, Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, all of those people were basically humans who became enlightened and then tried to point other people in the same direction. The most recent one of those was like, was it 2,000 years ago? I don't think their teachings are really as appropriate for someone living in the 21st century. I think a lot of that stuff can be updated. I think we can understand it in a a much more useful and helpful context than what we have in the past. And an open enlightenment, I hope, will provide that context. There are various problems with enlightenment I won't go into now, but I will deal with on the site and and discuss, for instance, like um, the problems with are there the multiple awakenings or is there just One awakening described by all traditions, which is, you know, they're talking about the same thing, that kind of thing. And I think we need to have an open and honest debate about enlightenment and talk about our own experience of it so that we can understand it. Uh, I think that's very important because I realized at the point of my enlightenment that it's what I'd been looking for my entire life. And I mean, I, I described it at the time as before enlightenment, I was distinct and separate, but after enlightenment, I was distinct and whole. And that that wholeness, that completion, um, I mean, sometimes it's described as the end of insight practice, but for me, I don't necessarily see it as an end, but I see it as finding an absolute identity, if you like, or or discovering the absolute truth about who I am and my relationship to the world. And I realized that I'd spent my entire life looking for that completion of that wholeness in my family relationships, in love, in music, in art, in uh, my career, in drinking beer, in doing drugs, all kinds of things. And I'd been, I, that's what I'd been looking for, that wholeness, that completion. And up until that point that I was enlightened, I'd never done any of those things for their own sake. And after enlightenment, it's as if, you know, for the first time, you can really uh, live your life and enjoy life for what it actually is, the thing that it is. So I, I think that's important because I think that's what everyone is looking for, is that wholeness, that completion. And that's why I think it's important that we talk about this stuff.
1: Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic dharma provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information, and to register, visit buddhistgeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting buddhistgeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community, And join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered. You're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.